Our scripture reading this morning is first in the prophecy of Isaiah, and then our text in Psalm 115. First of all, in Isaiah, we'll read chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 9. These are the two many have called the classic texts that expose idolatry and the folly of idolatry. Isaiah 44, verse 9, we'll begin reading there, and I want to make a couple of comments as we read. This is God's word. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith, and that's an idol maker who makes idols out of metal, The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The carpenter, and that's the one who makes idols out of wood, the carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes and he marketh it out with a compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, For he will take thereof and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread, yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof, that is part of the tree, in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof, that is the other part of the tree, he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their ear hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there any knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? 
Now we turn to our text in Psalm 115. Psalm 115. The psalm is really divided up into three parts. The introduction, verses 1 and 2 and 3. And 3 is the beginning of our text. And then an expose of idols in verses 4 through 8. And then a call to Israel. To trust not in idols, but in God. So an introduction, one through three. The expose of idols in verses four through eight, and then the call. Let's read God's word in Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done Whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them, are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth, and forevermore, praise the Lord. That's the reading of the psalm. Let's reread the text, beginning at verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Psalm 115 is a loud, public declaration of two things. Idols are foolish, and God, Jehovah, is God. That's Psalm 115, a loud and public declaration of the absolute folly of worshiping idols and the sovereignty and goodness of God. Now what's interesting about the psalm is that 
these declarations are made in the context of trouble. Israel's in trouble, and their trouble is that they're not only possessed by the heathen, controlled by the heathen, but now taunted by the heathen. So imagine Israel in captivity, the heathen saying to Israel, we own you, we control you. Now show us your God and his power that you say he has to deliver you. Where is he? Where is your God? You say he delivered his people in the past by great wonders and miracles. Show us, where is your God? And to that the Israelites say, why should the heathen now say, where is your God? That's the context in verse 2. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? That is, the psalmist is asking, why should they say that? Then his response is, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. That's the first declaration. Our God is God. And then comes the second declaration, and look how foolish are idols. Look at what your idols are. And be careful that you not, you people of God, and I not commit the same sin that was committed so often in the Old Testament. Remember how foolish it is to trust an idol. And remember how good God is. He's able to do what we ask him to do. He can. And that's really the sum of the sermon. The folly of idolatry. First, In the first place, look at idolatry's failure. Idols can't help you. And then in the second place, idolatry is revenge because not only do idols not help you, they hurt you. And then in the third place, idolatry's implied call. And that really embraces the whole of the psalm. Idolatry's failures, idolatry's revenge, and idolatry's call. The psalm really is a very simple message, so simple that you children can remember it. Idols always fail you. Idols cannot help you. Don't trust idols. That's a very simple message of Psalm 115. And it's that last expression that I just used that gets at the heart of what idolatry is. I said, don't trust them, because the essence of an idol is someone or something that's not the true God who says, trust me. Trust me instead of him to give you what you need. Trust me to fill you. Trust me to give you peace. Trust me to pity you, to help you, to prosper you, to protect you to shield you, to be your friend. And all of those and others come out in the psalm when you look at the psalm around our text. Look at verses 9 through 11 and the call of Israel to trust God because God is our help and our shield. The idol says to you, no, trust me to be your help. And trust me to provide your needs. And trust me to shield you when you are in trouble. 
Trust me, he says, if you look at verses 12 and 13, to bless you. Blessing is to speak well of you. Blessing is to speak words to make you happy, to lift your spirits. The idol says, don't trust him, trust me. If you look at verse 14, Israel is called to trust God who will increase us, that is, to prosper us. And that in terms of material possessions, so that we're able to eat and drink and have a place to live and be clothed, or to be prospered in our generations, so that we have children after us who carry on, we may say, our legacy. The idol says, trust me to prosper you and increase you. And then if you go to verse 12, the idol says, I'll be mindful of you too. That is, I'll remember you when others don't. I'll think about you and let you know that I'm always thinking about, don't trust God, trust me to be mindful of you. And then if you go back to the first part of the text, the chapter, the psalmist speaks of God and his mercy and truth. Pity is mercy, and truth is faithfulness. And the idol says, trust me to pity you when you're hurt, to lift you up when you're wounded and can't get up yourself, and trust me to be faithful when everyone else is unfaithful. That's what an idol says, trust me. Now the text that was around the text, the text itself describes an idol in terms of some God having all the features of a man. He has a mouth and ears, eyes and nose, and hands and feet. And the importance of the mouth comes out when the idol is described at the beginning and at the end of the text as having apparently the ability to speak. They have mouths, verse 5 says. And at the end of verse 7, they have a throat through which they're supposed to speak. And that emphasizes the importance of a God's big G or little g mouth. A God makes promises to do you good. A God will console you when you're hurt. A God will explain why what happened in the past happened and will tell you what's going to happen in the days to come. Or God just speaks to you because a God is supposed to be a friend. Trust me, the idol says, to be able to speak to you. Trust me by my eyes that I have to be able to see you, and not see you in the way that men see you, or I am able to see you just on the surface, because I don't know what's behind the surface. The God says, trust me, to see you, that is to understand you and comprehend you and all of your needs. And that's why the text doesn't describe an idol having a brain. The eyes represent the mind of an idol. And we use that word see in that way too. When someone explains to us a complex problem or describes to us what we didn't understand because we didn't have the whole picture in view, at the end of it we say, I see, and we mean I understand. So with an 
I, or eyes, the idol says, I see you, understand you, and therefore am able to sympathize with you in all of your needs. I have ears to hear you when you cry and to hearken with to you. And when I hearken to you, I will come to you because I have feet, and I will bless you and help you and protect you because I have hands. The idol says, trust me. And you notice that I haven't said anything yet about the idol's nose. Why would a god need a nose? I think that's one of the underappreciated senses that God has given us as human beings, the ability to smell, the powerful sense of smell. Maybe some of you appreciate that because in the time of COVID, you lost your sense of smell. And I have a relative who never regained that sense. And though when we invite her over for dinner, she says she can taste the good meal. I wonder about that because she can't smell, smell. Good smells delight us. We approve good smells and bad smells disgust us and we're repulsed by them. And we express that revulsion to them too. When I come home from seminary work and drive into the garage and can smell outside in the garage already the sautéed onions and peppers and a little bit of garlic, I know I'm in for a good meal. And I'm thankful for that. And I tell my wife that too. I love that smell. And all of you know about the smells that are disgusting to which you turn up your nose and turn away your face and you express that disgust too. That's awful, you say. Now, The idol says, I have that sense too. I have the ability to smell you, to understand you. And I am going to tell you that I either approve what I smell and delight in you, or I am disgusted with you and repulsed by you and will turn away from you. That's the function of a God. We say, God Send thy approval from on high. We sing that in the Psalms. What we want God to do is testify to our conscience, and that's the key word here. Men and women have a conscience, and God always speaks to a man's or woman's conscience after that God has smelled you and sensed what you are all about. And then says, you're good to me. I approve you. I love you. Or, I'm disgusted with you and I reject you. Now an idol is all the appearance of being able to do those things. Eyes and ears, a mouth and nose, hands and feet, but he can't. He has no ability to do any of those things that he promises you he can. They have no power at all. Now to remind yourself of that, remember the history of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Baal was the idol, 400, maybe 800 prophets gathered together to call on their idol, whom they said was a god, 
And Elijah by himself on the top of Mount Carmel next to them, calling upon the name of Jehovah. And remember what those 400 prophets of Baal did all day long. They cried, they prayed, they shouted, they cut themselves, they danced, they did everything. Finally, Elijah, to expose them in their folly, said, you maybe better cry a little bit louder because your God may be sleeping or maybe he's on a journey. And cry as they may, cut themselves as they did, offer all of the sweet, expensive incense that they could, their God did not answer them because their God was an idol. Their God couldn't speak to them couldn't hear them, couldn't see them when they bowed down, couldn't smell their incense, couldn't handle their gifts, couldn't stir one step toward them to bless them, felt no pity to them in their trouble, couldn't tell the future, couldn't explain the past, and had about as much ability to fellowship with them as that silver and gold did when it was still underground. That's an idol. Well, what do you expect, says the scripture? They're man-made. They're the works of men's hands. That's why we read Isaiah 44, because the prophet is exposing the absolute folly of idolatry. Do you realize, the prophet said to the people, that you saw that beautiful tree, and maybe you even planted groves of a certain kind of tree because you liked that wood, ash, cedar, cypress, oak, And then you took that tree, cut it down, used the top half to warm your home and to bake your bread, and the bottom half of the same tree you used to make with your own hands an idol. Do you realize how foolish idolatry is? Idols are man-made. And then you add to the folly the fact that idols are often expensive. That's why the text says not only they're the work of men's hands, but they're silver and gold often. They would take that wood and coat it with silver or gold, or they would simply make an idol out of silver and gold. Silver and gold are the means by which you buy your necessities, food and drink and clothing and shelter and medicine. Silver and gold are what you use to buy your luxuries. And silver and gold are often what you use to buy your protection, to hire an army or weapons. And now you're using that to make this impotent idol? Do you realize how foolish that is? Says God today to you and to me, who am inclined no less than the Israelites then to worship idols. Because remember, when Elijah was at the top of Mount Carmel, those 400 prophets of Baal were Israelites. And the great majority of the people of Israel were right with them. And Elijah had to expose the folly of idolatry, and we must do that today too, so we can sing with meaning If we have forgotten the name of our God or unto an idol, our hands spread abroad, shall not the Almighty uncover this sin? He knows all our thoughts and the secrets within. I can't 
see your idols. You can't observe my gods with a little g, but God does. And we need to ask ourselves how many idols we worship. There are gods many and lords many, says Paul in the New Testament, commenting really on the first commandment, which hasn't been removed from the tables of the law today. And so the Apostle John ends one of his epistles with this injunction, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so let me ask you and myself some questions to help us see that we have idols that we need to break down. What is it that will fill you when you're empty? Who will listen to you when you need to unburden your soul? Who will pity you when you're hurt? Speak to you when you're lonely? Remember you when you're forgotten? Approve you when your conscience convicts you? Shield you when you're assaulted? Prophesies to you of the good to come? or explains to you the evil of the past, to whom do you go for all of these things? We have gods many and idols many. Some of us, the Bible says, have our belly as our God. Their God is their belly. Maybe we don't eat too much. Maybe we just like to eat and call ourselves foodies. We ought to be embarrassed about that. There are others whose God is their body, and they're always at the gym or on the track or doing something so that their physique is commendable by others. And you're going to notice that almost all of the idols that I give as examples are not in themselves idols, but we can make them so. Of course, food, exercise. There are others who make drink an idol, alcohol, or some other substance to give them peace. And that's why when the consistory deals with an alcoholic, then the commandment that is listed in the minutes of the consistory as a ground is the first commandment. For some of us, money or possessions are our idol. We always want to buy. When we're feeling empty, we go to the store and then we feel satisfied or feeling unsafe. We think about our bank account and then we feel safe. And we're approved when others see what we wear or drive or the house in which we live. Some of us have made the phone, which used to be a tool for communication, a God that dominates us so that we can't live without that little device. And we're always thinking about it, and we're in a panic when we don't have it. Some are addicted to sports, nor share their company, we sing. I share not in their offerings, nor in their company. 
to worship other gods. And yet, how often don't we share their company by watching them? I read recently in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, if you've heard of that, that's the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual for Mental Disorders, that they've added another disorder, and it's called Internet Gaming Disorder. And I wonder sometimes, and now I'm watching, because I've preached this sermon before, and when I've said that, I've had people acknowledge that this is where they are. And even the world has recognized that it's something that's addicting or addictive. Always to be gaming, always to be playing. And of course, the risk of making all of the, giving all of these examples leaves open the possibility that my idol isn't mentioned or your idol isn't mentioned and then you or I imagine that we're safe. And yet, that's so far from the truth. We all need to ask ourselves these questions. What is it that fills us when we're empty, gives us peace when we're uneasy, approves our consciences, and so forth? Or Facebook, or other social media. It was 10 years ago, at least, that I read an article that had a title that said, Facebook is not your friend. And for many other reasons, you ought to know Facebook is not your friend. You understand the play on words there. And yet, how many of us don't depend upon social media to get likes and to be and feel approved or feel really bad when there are dislikes or have no one comment on what we've posted? Have we made those things an idol? And the last example I can give is the example of the Old Testament that came up over and over again, and that is the sexual sins that were inclined to commit. You remember when Balaam and Balak wanted to destroy Israel? Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, and when they couldn't because God didn't let them curse, they said, well, plan B is that we will bring the women, the beautiful women who are idol worshipers into their camp and tempt them that way. And that's exactly what they did. And then the judgment of God fell upon Israel. And what's new? What's new? If we have forgotten the name of our God or unto that idol, our hands spread abroad. That idol says, come, I have eyes to see you. I'll listen to you. I'll speak to you, and I'll give you all of the pleasure that you think you need. And then, because we're not going to have enough time this morning, think of all of the money that people of God spend on these man-made idols. How absolutely, utterly foolish. But you say, they see me. No, they don't. They hear me. No, they don't. They smell and approve me like no one else does. No, they don't. All they do is leave you empty, guilty, miserable, and alone. I need to learn that. You need to learn that. All they do is leave you empty, 
guilty, miserable, and absolutely alone. And how many people don't you know who've made one of those or something else their God and apparently were doing well and were the most miserable people you knew? But our God, this is the positive part of the first point. Our God is in the heavens, and he does. We often quote verse 3 of our text to prove the sovereignty of God, but just stop with that statement, our God is in the heavens, he does. What the idols can't, he can. He has everything that God needs to have for us to worship him, and he'll do everything that we need to have a God do to us. He has everything. He has eyes and ears, a mouth and nose, and hands and feet. He has eyes. He has a mouth. He speaks to you by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man lives by the word of the Lord. The heavens were made. When he curses, we're cursed. And when he blesses, we are blessed. We live, remember, by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. That's the fellowship we need. He walks with me and talks with me. He's God. He can. He does. His eyes see you. He that made the eyes, shall he not see? And all of this brings up the title of the figure of speech that's used here. It's called anthropomorphism. And that's not a difficult word to understand because you children know that the word morph is to shape or form. And an anthropomorphism, anthropos is the Greek word for man, the shape of a man. Anthropomorphism is the biblical figure of speech that refers to God as though he were a man. So you read in the Bible that he has eyes and ears and nose and mouth and hands and feet. And you mustn't say about these anthropomorphisms, well, God doesn't really have eyes. This is what you must say. God has the eyes of which our eyes are but little dim pictures. And he has the mouth of which our mouths are but dim reflections. He has eyes. He sees you. Everything about you under the surface and he understands you, and therefore is able to pity you. He never forgets you. He'll always be mindful of you, because he has a mind that has a capacity that's infinite. He's God. He has ears to hear you when you cry. So when you say, bow down thine ear and deliver me, Psalm 31, or incline thine ear and save me, he does. He hears you and hearkens to you. With his feet, he comes to you. And with his hands, he blesses you. And you recognize that I have not yet said anything about his nose. God has a nose. He is smelling you. And with that nose, he understands you. And to your conscience, he speaks and either approves you, and you know it, or disapproves you, and you know that too. 
You are freed in your conscience from all shame and guilt, or you are bound in your conscience by your sin and guilt. God has a nose that smells you. And when he smells you and sees you as united to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you've offered your offering, haven't you? And you've depended upon the blood that was shed in that offering, haven't you? When he smells the smoke of that offering go up into heaven and sees you united to his son, when he thinks about his son, he thinks about you. And the delight that he has in him, he has in you. And the approval that he gives to him, he gives to you, so that we need to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the eyes and the ears and the mouth and the nose and the hands and the feet of our God. In Christ, God remembers you, pities you, helps you, shields you, sees you, hears you, blesses you, prospers you. And in Christ, he approves you. And you may know that too, as you are holding on to him. He is closer than a brother. My Jesus is to me. I need him to be that. And we need to sing. Perhaps some of you older saints have been in Jamaica in years past when we did our work there. It was a song that some of the saints sang before worship began. Closer than a brother, my Jesus is to me. He's my dearest friend in everything I need. He's my rock, my shield, and hiding place. Closer than a brother, my Jesus is to me. And then went the chorus. And that's what we need to confess. Jesus is our God, whom he worship, whom we worship. When all of the idols leave you empty, miserable, guilty, and ashamed, he leaves you filled and happy and approved. He is our God. House of Jacob, trust him. House of Israel, depend on him, not idols. But you see, that that's not even the worst of it, though we spent the majority of the sermon on that. That's not the worst of it, because not only can idols not help you, when you trust them, they are going to hurt you. They take revenge upon you. And that comes out in verse 8, they that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. In the proper translation of verse 8, this is not a bad translation, they that make them are like unto them. And the application of that is very clear too. You worship vanity, you show your vain. You depend on weakness, you show your weak. You depend on blindness and you show that you can't see. That's all true, that's biblical, but that's not the proper understanding of the text. All of the other English translations of the Bible and the Dutch translation that our forefathers used hundreds of years ago translated the text this way, they that make them and worship them become like them. Not are, but shall be. And then you children who remember the Psalter say, that's what our Psalter says, doesn't it? 
Like them shall be all those who hold to gods of silver and of gold. It's one thing to be what the idol is. It's another thing to become gradually what the idol is. And that's the dynamic that the text is bringing out. You who make idols and you and I who worship them will eventually become like them. That's the theological point here. Become what you eat is one thing. The world knows that, but what the world doesn't know is that you become what you worship. You stand in the presence of an idol, you adore that idol, you spend time with that idol, and slowly you will become like that idol. And that's why Jeremiah said in his prophecy at the very beginning, they walked after vanity and are become vain. There's a process here. And so you read in 2 Kings 17 the same thing. They followed vanity and they became vain, where the word vanity is the word that's translated often idle. They followed idle and they became idle. Emptiness. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 picks up on that and says, don't be deceived. Evil communication, that is, Communion with evil corrupts you, does something to you. That's the theological point. The theological explanation is that God made us what we may call malleable. Now, that's a big word you children don't know, but you think of Play-Doh, children. If mom or grandma makes a nice new batch of Play-Doh, puts it in the fridge, you can't wait to get it out, sit at the counter, and put it there, and shape it to be what you want it to be. Maybe you make it in the shape of an alligator, and then all you need to do is crunch it up and make it in the shape of a car, or in the shape of anything else you want it to be. Play-Doh is malleable. Well, that's the way God made us too. Easily shaped. And the truth of the Word of God is that we are shaped by the one in whose presence we stand. It doesn't happen overnight, it's gradual, but it happens. It's a law of God. It's the judgment of God that's no different than the law of gravity. If you need to reshingle the roof, be careful of the law of gravity. You might not like it, but if you stand at the edge of the roof and are careless, you're going to find the results of gravity. And the same is true here. This is a law of God. He made us. And his works are such that when you stand in the presence of an idol, you will become like that idol. And that's why parents tell you, children, be careful who your friends are. And when you get to high school, they ask you, who are your friends? And you might be annoyed by that question, but your parents ask you that because your parents know this truth. In the presence of evil friends, you will become evil. They will influence you in that negative way, and they don't want that for you. Who are your friends? That's why they taught you to sing, perhaps, when you were very little. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And the end of those stanzas is, because the Father up above is looking down in love, therefore be careful, But if someone were to write another stanza for that little child's hymn, they ought to say something like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, because the judgment of God 
is such that what you see, you become. Now, of course, I didn't rhyme it. Someone can do that. But that's what we need to remember. You become what you adore. What is it that you watch? What is it that entertains you and me? Where do I spend a lot of my time? And is it the case that in this past week, if I would log where I've been and what I've watched, that watching sport or hunting or whatever else it may be for women, that that is far greater than standing in the presence of God. And then it ought not be surprising to me or you that I'm weak spiritually, that my eyes are dim spiritually, that I can't hear spiritual things very well, and I'm unable to articulate the things of the gospel, and I can't smell out what's evil and discern what's good. That ought not be surprising to me if I've been in the presence of idols. We'll go through all of the idols that we've talked about. And don't be surprised if watching aggression and violence and murder makes us numb to, and if not worse, all of those sins. Now the opposite is true too. Our God is in the heavens and says, stand before me. And though it won't happen overnight, as you stand before me, you become like me. That's the beautiful counter-truth with regard to God's laws. You see and hear and know and become strong when you're in the presence of Him. That's the clear and unmistakable truth of Scripture too. And Israel learned that in their kindergarten lessons in the book of Exodus because Moses went up into the mountain and spent 40 days there. And after he was 40 days in the presence of God, even you children know this, he came down and he so reflected the beauty of God that he had to put a veil over his face. Because he was in God's presence, he looked like God. And so the New Testament says the very same thing. We all, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, with an open face. And that means with an unveiled face. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. More and more. It doesn't happen overnight. Just as becoming like an idol doesn't happen overnight. Standing in the presence of God results in, under the blessing of God, that we become like Him. And that explains the second verse of another old hymn. Though I love the Psalms and sing the Psalms, mostly there are some good hymns too. Here's the second stanza of that hymn, Take Time to Be Holy. You know the first? This is the second. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. And then this. By looking to Jesus, like him, thou shalt be. 
thy friends in thy conduct, his likeness shall see. Whoever wrote that hymn understood this biblical principle. You become like the one in whose presence you stand and whom you adore. Now, Israel, have you been owned by a God who isn't a God? And are you being taunted perhaps by that God who isn't a God but has some power to enslave you? And now mocks you, where is the God you said was your God? And show me his power to deliver you. Are you addicted, perhaps, to something? Some substance? Some activity? And you say, why should the heathen say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. If that's true for you, and insofar as that is true for all of us, the first thing you must do is not Cry out to God, help me, rise, help, and redeem me. The first thing you must do is what Psalm 115 says. Confess loudly and publicly, my God is in the heavens. He's sovereign and he's powerful. And then do in the second place what the psalm says you ought to do, loudly and publicly. Talk about that idol that you've been worshiping? Sit down with your children, shall we? And your grandchildren, and expose them openly. Show the folly and the weakness and the inability of sport or drugs or alcohol or money or the gym or food or whatever else you may think of to talk about. The absolute inability of those things that are all man-made to help us in any way. They can't fill me when when I'm empty, but for a little while, and then I'm unsatisfied. They can't ease my guilty conscience, except maybe forget it for a little while, and then it comes back. They can't approve me. They can't fellowship with me either, though they'll say, I'll be your friend. Expose them, all of them. That's the first calling. And then the second calling is put them away. After you've named them, put them away. And then in the third place, the calling is come back tonight to church. Come to catechism tomorrow evening or whenever else you have catechism. This is God's workshop, as it were, where God goes to work on you who are malleable, and when you are in his presence as you are now, he shapes you more and more into his image so that you are among many of God's children. Where Jesus is the firstborn and God predestinated us to be conformed into his image so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Come into his workshop Sunday morning.
Sunday evening, Monday afternoon and evening, catechism, Bible study, and open the word of God in your own home and stand in his presence because when you do under his blessing, you will have eyes to see spiritual things and delight in them and ears to hear what you ought to hear and be blessed by them and all of the other senses and functions, hands to help, feet to go to the people of God in their need, a heart that pities them in their distress, and the ability to lift them up and bless them. Name the idols, expose them, call on God to deliver you, and then come into his workshop. Our God is in the heavens. He does what a God should do in Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Send us home now, meditating upon the things of the kingdom. Enable us to spend this afternoon examining our own hearts and lives and homes, our desires, our thoughts our entertainment, our recreation, our leisure, our work, our motives, our speech. Enable us to spend much time with Jesus. Forgive, Lord, our idols and idolatry and sanctify us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.